This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Today, we're going to do something a little unusual. We're going to talk about magic mushrooms. And I just want to say from the start that this was Nathan's idea and that I am not responsible for anything that happens from this point on. Oh, you're totally implicated. You're totally implicated. Okay. All right. I guess I can't get out of that. Nathan, why are we talking about magic mushrooms? Okay. So here we go on the mushroom thing. Um, No. So one of it is is its wide popularity and fascination. And this is, you know, a historical thing in humanity, but kind of really, I think, hit the mainstream news shelves in 2018 when Michael Pollan, uh, many of you will be familiar with Michael Pollan, uh, teaches various places. Omnivores. The New York Times. Omnivores Dilemma. Omnivores Dilemma. Yeah. Lo- yeah. yeah. Lots of, lots of books. So well known. Uh, I think just wrote a book on caffeine. You can catch the Google talk on that, uh, which is very clear that caffeine is not a food. It is a drug. So there's a little bit of a, you know, excitement for you. Um, but anyway, the book that he wrote in 2018 um, is called How to Change Your Mind. What the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. So, I mean, how do you like that for a title? That's that's promising to put a lot on your plate there. Um, but the, so the reason it caught my mind is that it was voted by the New York Times to be one of the top 10 best books of 2018. So, you know, maybe the New York Times isn't always the litmus test for everything, but I think any time that a book is voted in the top 10 best for the New York Times, that would say, okay, this is hitting a, um, it, it's at least piquing the interest of a significant number of people, and it plays with a, a wild array of uh, deep philosophical questions about what it means to be human, specifically when it comes to our consciousness, and, a, and an attempted understanding of a, of a bridging perhaps between the scientific and religious worlds. So a, a lot is offered to us um, from that. But on the other side of that, Cameron, I think, you know, and I'll get you to chime in here. I bet this isn't just like, a, oh, that's neat on a bookshelf somewhere. I bet you know people who have talked to you about mushrooms before. Yeah. my am expecting it. And go. <laughs> and go. Yeah. So my my context for mushrooms was a friend of mine a number of years ago and... I will speak in cryptic terms because I want to protect privacy here. But essentially, we were in a setting at the time that was where there was a strict code of conduct and ma- magic mushrooms were definitely off the table. Maybe maybe even caffeine was viewed with suspicion and maybe Michael Pollan would agree with that. But anyway, here we were in this setting. This person told me that they not only were they rejecting Christianity. It was actually a very formal kind of arrangement where this person got in touch with friends, had us all gather together, and then announced, I reject Christ I renounce Christianity. It was it was it was quite quite yeah, there was almost a sort of a ceremonial aspect to it. 
but got really into mushrooms and started talking about about it in in terms that reminded me almost of a kind of religious cult. That's the best analogy I, I could come up with. And he would off, say things along the lines of, don't take these things unless you are prepared to truly face who you are on the inside. And that can be a very scary journey sometimes. It's a really frightening thing. You need to be ready for it. You know, and I, of course, side note, I had no intention of going on such a journey at that point or any, you know, any other point, but I just kind of thought, this is interesting because he, he was certainly using a lot of quasi-spiritual language to describe, yeah, to describe this 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 trip, if you will. So that was that was my that was where this whole conversation intersected with my personal life, if you will. <laughs> there you go. Well, here let me let me read a quote to you. This is just one paragraph from the book, um, and there are a bunch of things that you said there that are very helpful. Ah, about. Nathan has the book. I have the book. Yeah, yeah. It's right here. Just story time with Nathan. Brace yourself. Get your munchies out. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, so this is a, so this is Poland writing. Uh, Karen Sokol, a life coach and energy healer in her fifties, described an experience that quote changed everything and opened me profoundly. End quote. At the climax of her journey, she had an encounter with a God who called himself "I Am." In his presence, she recalled, every one of my chakras was exploding. And then there was this light. It was pure light of love and divinity, and it was with me, and no words were needed. I was in the presence of this absolute pure divine love, and I was merging with it in this explosion of energy. Just talking about it, my fingers get electric. It sort of penetrated me. The core of our being, now I knew, is love. At the peak of the experience, I was literally holding the face of, of Osama bin Laden, looking into his eyes, feeling pure love from him and giving it to him. The core is not evil, it is love. I had the same experience with Hitler and then someone from North Korea. So I think we are divine. This is not intellectual. This is a core knowingness. So the the idea of this core knowingness of opening ourselves up to a broader cosmic oneness and awareness, you'll frequently see references to little Buddha statues and a lot of the offices and places of work of a lot of people who are involved in this. Um, but yeah, the, the carrot on the stick here is this core knowingness. So that quote popped into my mind when you said about your friend saying, you know, if you really want to know yourself. So there's um, this invitation to a deeper knowledge and understanding and awareness that I think is is a big attractive part of this. Now, this is not new. I mean, you go back to the 60s and Harvard and LSD studies and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, Timothy a Leary. A huge part of this comes from, you know the sixties and executives of JP Morgan flying down to the jungles of South America to experiment with these things. Obviously the sixties in and of themselves had quite a bit of uh, experimentation in, in these categories happening. So in some ways it's not new. Uh, if you want to read about the religious use of psychedelics, uh, I like the little book, uh, the spirit of the rainforest looking at the conversion of shaman in the South American jungles and the way that they used, um, medicinal herbs and psychedelics in order to go into trances for their spiritual experiences. So, I mean, on, on one front, there's a lot that isn't new here. I think the shift that's happening, and this is what Poland is chronicling, is its acceptance in the medical community as an actual um, serious help for, for a number of things. So there's a lot of addiction recovery that's happening in 
going along with this. And then he said, this is pretty much following the same trajectory of, of marijuana. First, you show its medicinal value, and then it becomes more acceptable, broadly speaking. So for addiction, there's a big part of it, but also one of the uses is in anxiety and depression for terminal cancer patients. And you have a, it's not just while you're on the trip, but people on LSD and these other psychedelics are highly suggestible. Hmm. And so if you're in that state and your guide tells you things, the probability of that becoming real for you is very high. So you can see some of the, the outworkings there. But on this idea of this infusion of myself into a broader wholeness or unity does change the way that we think about anxiety and depression. Um, interestingly enough, there's a guy working on some Google health stuff that he had interviewed who talked about there's now a Google algorithm that can predict your tendency to depression and suicide based off of your use of first person pronouns in your speech. And so the way that you're talking about yourself in the first person and the frequency by which you use certain pronouns about yourself. So, so all that to say is that the experience of how we conceptualize ourselves has a very radical impact on our felt experience in our day-to-day lives. You could then see how a psychedelic experience that gives you this lasting um, self-identity as embedded in a cosmic oneness or reality does transform the way that we experience certain emotions uh, going forward from that. So that would just be one example of kind of some of the renewed resurgence as this is coming into like clinical trials and stuff in major hospitals of looking at, um, so I, yeah, toward the end of this, I want to get into how we think this might be working neurologically speaking, but the fact of the matter is that most of it isn't explained. It's just saying this actually works. There's a pragmatism to it, and we're hoping that the science catches up to it. Well, be, so, uh, okay, before anyway, we get into, into there's that. Yeah, so before we get into the some of the biological territory of what this is actually, or really the, the neurological territory, some of what, what this is actually doing to a person's brain, I'm curious. So given what you've said then, Nathan, do you see this developing roughly along the lines of the legalization of marijuana? Obviously, that's that's a major point of discussion. And of course, marijuana is legal in several states now and conceivably will, will probably be legal in most in most of the 50 states, I would say pretty soon. I mean, that's a that's a major discussion. Do you see do you see this as following along that same trajectory? I would imagine it will. It'll be a little harder to, I think there'll be some additional regulation. So in, in one sense, people would say, look, um, there are lasting uh, similar <laughs> symptoms to psychotic meltdown from overexposure and overuse of this. But most people say it's not addictive. By and large, it doesn't make you violent or angry. And so if we go the track record of this isn't a harm to anyone else, Hmm. then I think that will now, I mean, there is some like, like, Oh yes, this makes me, you know, reading these stories of like, Oh yeah. It makes me want to take off all my clothes and walk around naked in the woods kind of thing. Um, most of, so the experimentation that he goes through is, is they're saying, you know, there are people who are practitioners in guiding you in this experience. So you go in and you sign these contracts of what will or won't happen to you during this time. And this person's kind of looking after you physiologically and psychologically while you're doing this. Um, so there is a little bit more of a, yeah, I don't know how to answer that specifically, but I think anytime I mean, it's kind of speculative, but it's spec it's totally speculative at this point, but no, Poland points toward that of saying, this is the same trajectory of a lot of other things of 
once yeah. people can see it has medicinal value, then it's going to lose any type mm-hmm. of stigma around stigma. it. And then it'll be just... A, right. Yeah. Well, and the fact that this is a book that was selected by the New York Times in 2018 as one, as one of its top books, when something like that gets that level of popularity, you've got a new legitimacy kind of being conferred on it. So I, I do, yeah, it's certainly as you were talking about it, as the medicinal uses are being explored and as some of that stigma is, is being kind of removed, it makes sense to maybe anticipate a little bit <laughs> some of the, you know, the discussions that will be coming our way. But before we... So obviously, the big question that's going to be hovering over all of this for us is, as, you know, Christians will be ethical concerns with all of this. But, but before we get there... I also think it's important just to to get an idea or get a perspective of what this does to the brain because we do have some insights into what what happens there. I mean it it it's doing some pretty remarkable things to the way that we think. And so I mean people are experiencing some pretty astonishing visions. I mean holding the face of Osama bin Laden and <laughs> looking into yeah, his eyes but- with pure love and doing the same thing with Hitler. This is this is pretty wild stuff. What's yeah, well, going I mean, re- read the stories, and that one's tame. Um, so, oh okay. man. So here, Cameron, you'll love this. You know how oftentimes a book has as your it'll have like a little poem or a line from a poem or something, a little quote after the title page. Yep. So this actually has a quote. Starts off with a quote from Emily Dickinson. Ooh, one of my favorites. Who, you know those of you who are Christians and enjoy, you know, poetry. And the, and the line is this, the soul should always stand ajar. And so if you use that as the framing lens of stepping into this, I'm not sure that the ethical, I don't think my concerns are ethical right off the bat. Hmm. I think it's, it's a deeper longing for meaning and this idea of like, we always want to be open to new experience and new ideas. The soul should always stand ajar. Um, which in, in many ways I think is true. I, th- I think there's a wonderfully mysterious world out there that we haven't even tapped into the depth of it. And mushrooms probably are one of the indicators that we're right about being fearfully and wonderfully made. So, but I'm not saying that you need psychedelics in order to keep the door of your soul ajar. So, so there's that element of offering a new experience. But yeah, as you're saying, it's very clear from all of the research that what psilocybin mushrooms and the psychedelics most form what they're doing is they're disorganizing your brain hmm. so neurologically primarily what it seems like and and you know there's all this stuff about brain scans and mris and like parts of your brain that write nobody's reading brains or reading minds at this time through you know mri scans or anything like that they can see where blood flow is you know intensified or activity is happening but it, nobody can read a mind technologically speaking, um, at, at this point in time, recording this in 2022. <laughs> um, so let's keep that. But what seems to be happening is you have something that the researchers working on this call, um, the default mode network in your brain. And the default mode network is the network of activity that's happening in your brain when you're not doing anything. So you're not actively thinking, I'm going to bend over and pick up this box. You're not moving. It's, it's like what's, what your brain is doing when you're daydreaming and it's ordering and processing, it's running your basic sensory, kind of all the background operating system of your mind 
although we wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to reduce your mind down to an operating system. But if you think about like the, the core functional non-physical movement parts of your brain and the way that your mind is ordered and connected, that's your default mode network. What psychedelics are doing is they're taking all of the breaks off of that that allow your neural neural pathways to form connections across all sorts of channels that they normally don't run in. So you can see that's ac actually what you're doing is you're suppressing the device within your brain that orders the structure of your thoughts that are subconscious. So that's why you can get a crossover between senses and like start smelling colors and all, you know, so different things is because your brain is just re-networking and rewiring that. Now, in some ways, that's really cool, right? I mean, it's sort of neat in that sense. Um, but I, I mean, there, there are fascinating reasons why our brains are able to do that. Our, our neuroplasticity, um, on a more morbid side, I had a cousin who was shot in the head a couple years ago. And this wasn't like a graze. This was like the, the percussion of the explosion and his head blew one of his eyes out. And it was hanging by an optic nerve, right? So they cut the front of his head off, took fat out of his leg and pushed his frontal cortex back and stitched him back together popped his eye in and now you would say that's incredible. Like you wouldn't know, um, because the brain can rewire and rework and rebuild itself, um, back into functioning networks. So the neuroplasticity of our mind, I think is just a fat, you know, learning all of that stuff really wild. And so basically mushrooms are chemically doing that, um, for the duration of, of the time in which it's impactful. So yeah, that's, that's basically what's happening is you're reorganizing it would kind of be like driving on the interstate and then making it three-dimensional and taking away any boundaries. Mm. So your vehicle can kind of move and, and change lanes and, and do whatever. I mean, it's a very simplistic description, but that's kind of what... So you're, you're disorganizing your brain. So neurologically, that makes sense. But people then... What happens, the, the byproduct of that is people disassociate. The, the big questions that are here is the relationship between the material and the spiritual... Poland is writing from a very closed frame of this. Lots of references to Freud and Jung. Okay. Uh, so still a very old school psychological concept yeah. of the self and assuming that there is a totally naturalistic cause for all of this. And he's often pushing back on people who say this is a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And he would say, you know, well, how do you know it's not physical? And they say, well, is there a meaningful distinction and does it matter? So I think, well, that, sorry, that was a, a no, long but, rabbit trail of rants there. But. Well, it's helpful because it makes sense of some of the reports from, let's call them journeys or trips, right? Why not just, let's just it's a trip. This whole, this whole podcast is a trip, man. So <laughs> when, when people describe some of, the, of what's going on, they describe a world where all boundaries are gone. So that would make sense of what you've just said. The, the structures, the traditional structures of the mind, or the, rather the mind's structuring of reality goes away, melts away. And so you get reports of a feeling of cosmic oneness, right? How everything is interconnected, everything sort of melts together. So it's fascinating to see that there's a parallel between the dynamics of what's actually what is actually taking place in the brain and what you're experiencing and how you're experiencing the world. But it seems to me Nathan that some of what so Poland's sort of secular view brings out a point of tension here. And I think in many ways, another name we should probably mention here, one of the, the first, to my knowledge, major books to popularize psychedelics and their mind-expanding power was Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, 
which I'm sure I bet mm. Poland references that. I think that so that came oh, let, out. Let in me give nine, you, let me give you a little. Yeah. Let me give you a little Huxley um, poem here. So this was Huxley's argument: to make this trivial world sublime, take half a gram of phanerothrime. To fathom hell or go angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. Yeah, and what's so germane about that is that Aldous Huxley, of course, was a thoroughgoing naturalist. And so there's a distinct note of kind of despair in that because he's, in a sense, this is his escape from a mundane, hollow world. And so this adds yeah, depth. That's, that's the line. To make, the, to make this trivial world sublime. Yeah, so a, a sense of triviality. <laughs> yeah, and so you, through this artificial or synthetic experience, you make it sublime. It's something kind of, and well, so the doors of the of perception came out in 1954. So, relatively, you know, recent conversation that's kind of been. Now, obviously, this was a practice before then, but when you have a figure like Huxley lending legitimacy. That obviously ramps it up a little bit. But here's the tension that I'm thinking of, Nathan. For many of the people who who want these experiences, some seem to be focused on what Charles Taylor, the philosopher, called the inward turn. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it's a journey of self-discovery, and the glory is their sort of inward world that blooms and comes to life through this thing. For others, it unlocks the secrets of the universe, and it's kind of more of a cosmic experience. And it seems to me that that's kind of a point of attention of, of tension. So some people will for, for it's all about them. For others, it's about everything. It's the whole. It's the universe. I'm just wondering if that's if that's made an impression on you. One yeah. one's a little bit more kind of narcissistic. The other one is is more cosmic in nature. Yeah. So so the one that's more cosmic in nature is when you're having conversations with the plants in your gardens while tripping on mushrooms, right? So you're seeing this right uh, infusion. But no, my my broad reactions overall to the whole program is that many many of these experiences are described in sacramental or communion esque terms. So people are attributing deep religious language to it. But as a Christian, I would quickly want to throw a flag on the play on the play and say, here's the problem: is all of them are hyper individualistic. You can't share a hallucination with someone else. This is actually in some ways individualism run to its logical conclusion while at the same time giving you a sense of the transcendence. So therein, I think, lies the most fascinating element of that is that it's a, we're, we're inside of Taylor's buffered self and tricking our brain into feeling like we're not living there mm. all at the same time. And so almost in the same way that technology can isolate us by thinking us we're, we're connected to more than we are, I think there's a similar... Um, let's call it the mushroom effect here happening where the fact that I can't share a, a, a hallucination with you or anybody else does individualize the spiritual experience. So I think for those of us who are listening who are Christians, we would say a spiritual experience that can't be shared horizontally is deficient compared to the thing that God offers us for humanity and our relationship to one another. So more could be said about that, but I think that's overall one of the fundamental structures of my um, what, what, what I would see is a reason why I don't need mushrooms to <laughs> live a happy life. I think it's throw that in there. Then also throw in there. The thing that Christ seems to be offering is a fullness, not a disorganizing of my brain in order to find happiness from a trivial world. 
So in most ways, my, my life is such that this is not even a temptation for me to think that this is something that I need to do in order to find some sort of other meaning or connection with something bigger than myself or with other people. So I think I've been inoculated by it, uh, not by another type of mushroom spawn, <laughs> but by this not being a need uh, or something that seems synthetic and less than something that is... Now, you can only come to that conclusion if you don't think we live in an entirely materialistic world, which I don't. So I have to have that presupposition going into it in order for the statements that I just made to make sense. But there, there's kind of my first read on mm -hmm. interesting, um, not shocking. So all sorts of thoughts going through my brain right now. One, so yeah, one would be the tragic condition of somebody believing that this world really is intrinsically trivial. And you mentioned, I want to draw another point of connection here. You mentioned that Pollen is quite, I mean, quotes the theories of Freud quite a bit and, you know, Jung as well. Jung's a little bit more exotic than Freud. I want to bring in a, a story about Freud that I've told before, but I think fits here. So Freud had, and this comes from the triumph of the, from Philip Reef's book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Philip Reef was really probably the best exponent of Freud in America. He was a great interpreter of Freud because Freud was actually a much more consequential and deep thinker than he's he's given credit for these days. He's almost more of a joke nowadays. But he, a younger psychologist had written to Freud saying, you know, he had a patient who was really, really struggling with the meaning of her life. And essentially, the same malady that Huxley was describing, feeling that everything was trivial. And Freud wrote back to him and said, well, if your patient is worried about meaning in her life, your patient is sick, and she must, she must be brought to the place where she faces the intrinsic meaninglessness of her life and of life. And it's, it's most of Freud's disciples, by the way, so Adler, Jung, and Otto Rank, these were other really promising psychologists who, at one point, lapped up his every word. All of them ended up, in Freud's eyes, betraying him because they wanted to offer their patients some hope, some deeper consolation. And But Freud, here's where Freud's really consistent. He was consistent. He recognized that to do so was to go in a kind of quasi-religious direction, and he refused to do it because he didn't believe it. So if, but if you really, if that really is your outlook, that the healthiest way to see this world is as utterly hopeless, I just want us to pause for a minute and recognize how deeply sad that is, and that there are many people who actually do think that. They don't want to think that, but they do. And so I think that can bring us to a point of kind of compassion here, because I think both Nathan and I, the reason that is so sad to us is we would recognize that this world is, in the words of the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, which are almost the, the polar opposite of Huxley's little poem, the world is charged with God's grandeur. I mean, it is shot through with beauty and significance and just this radiance. And the notion that you, that you would want to escape all of that it's just very sad to me because, I mean, I can even just look out my window in the suburbs here and see enough splendor to just thrill me. 
but I, I'm not. That's not due to yeah. any kind of special insight on my part. That's because my perspective is so ordered so, by the fact that, yeah, that I believe Christ inhabits. I, so all, I yeah. think the push. Yeah. So what do you do then? I mean, so I think the push, the pushback to that would be the not all, no, not everybody's taking the Huxley approach here. Some people are saying no. There's just more meaning out there. Oh, so sure. I'm not doing this to escape. I'm doing this to reach the fullness of what is human potential that is out there. So, um, by the way, there's, there's some connection here. And I, I do think the whole thing just is fascinating as, as far as when we look at the complexity of the human mind or consciousness, at least in this point of people point out humans have the longest adolescence of any other type of mammal. <laughs> um, and so there's some thought that our neural pathway formation that's so critical when we're infants and children and even adolescents as our brain is being formed as we are forming those structures. So people have said, you know, is, is the grin of a baby basically the similar experience that a person on psilocybin mushrooms is having because you don't have any coherently formed neural pathways yet. <laughs> your, your mind is just always connecting and figuring out how to make sense of the world that you actually live in. So there's a reality formation element that's inherent in all of our minds. And so whether we develop that by walking in the woods or playing video games, I mean, it's our brains are being formed by the external stimuli that we put into them. So I think we can't just say, oh, well, it's just mushrooms that do this. No, it's a lot of other things that, that happen in our world and in our lives. So there's there's that part of it too. I think, you know, for the wealthy uh, New York Times writer, <laughs> I think there is a search for meaning there, but there's also a sense of like, well, this is fun. Um, of course. and if you look at, you know, I was telling you, I was reading this other book, uh, daily rituals, how artists work. If you go back through the list of your favorite musicians and literary giants, there's some pretty serious drug use going on there. Um, I remember sitting at a dinner discussion with two professors from Harvard. One was classics and one was history. And they were both very deeply involved in using psychedelics in order to more fully understand classic literature and history and interpreting history through psychedelic experiences I uh, spoke to another student at that university who had, uh, who came up to me and said, uh, cartoon characters are speaking to me and directing my life. And I said, I listened for a little while and everybody else was kind of rolling their eyes. And I said, uh, the only thing that I know that's similar to this has to do with South American shamanism. And he said, oh yeah, I visited a shaman in Colombia this summer and, you know, used all of his uh, medicinal herbs and went under trance and was guided by him. Um, so I, I do think there is a fascinating overlap, spiritually speaking here, of it's it's like I can't write it off either way, right? Yeah. Of saying that it's not helping people tap into something that's really there, that's true. Um, so we we might discover that versus saying, um, it's like it's hard to get away from the religious language because even Huxley, you know, a taste mm -hmm. of the of hell or the angelic. Um, yeah. So let me weigh in here a little bit. It's yeah. So help, help me out. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, we don't want to too quickly dismiss that there is deeper meaning that people oh, absolutely. have experienced to, and people do this through breathing exercises, fasting, standing on their head, doing mm -hmm. yoga, all kinds of other ways to restructure the blood flow in your brain in order to have these experiences. So how, how do we balance the, that? Sounds like you're going to sort it out for us. Great. I don't think I'm going to sort it out, but I, I think I want to, I want to chime in and say, yes, we don't want to explain away. And well, there are so first of all, there's a number there are a number of different facts that we have to confront here. First of all, the world this is a spiritual world. And 
there are methods of storming the gates, so to speak, when it comes to the spiritual world and sort of just barging right in. There are a number of different practices, some of which we've discussed on this show before. And so, yeah, if you read The Spirit of the Rainforest, by the way, you're going to have a very frank account of some amazing spiritual experiences that would make Western folks like us usually blush, but that are not in any way unusual to tons of people around the world. And so are the are are people really experiencing stuff that is I mean are those experiences real and are they making genuine contact in some cases? Yes, I think they are. Also, here's another here's another consideration. If you don't believe as I I believe Michael Pollan wouldn't that the mind has a distinct that it has an intrinsic purpose. If if you as a if you as a person and your mind, if you have an intrinsic pers- purpose, that means that it's one that you discover. You don't make it. But if you don't believe that, then the idea of experimenting with different technologies and drugs are that's a technology or different techniques, strategies, exercises, stretches, whatever you name, to to unlock your doors of perception or to play with your brain, it's a perfectly reasonable pursuit. You wouldn't, I mean, you would want to, I mean, the major questions for you would be, is this, you know, is this safe? Is this going to cause me any kind of serious harm? You know, you do a little cost-benefit analysis. If, however, you're a Christian... Or if you're anybody who believes that the mind has a specific purpose and design that doesn't come from you directly, then there are other considerations that come into play, right? Because it's, in a sense, you're not your own. So it's worth, it's worth considering that. Many people just, the default notion is that, no, I mean, I'm, I'm in control of my life. But if that's not your default setting, and if you don't think that, then some other questions come into play here as well. So, yeah, first of all, the, legitim- the legitimacy or the genuineness of some of these experiences, we don't want to call that into question. This is a spiritual world, and the mind is an amazing thing, and one that if you ever talk, if you talk to honest neuroscientists, we haven't even scratched the surface of the human mind. It's so impl- incredibly complex. I think another factor here worth taking into account, Nathan mentioned it, neuroplasticity. I mean, it is incredible. Human beings are hardwired for transformation, you might say. You can reform the pathways of your brain through something as, now you can do it through radical techniques, of course, and technologies, but through something as simple as changing your habits. Now, again, as a, as a, as a Christian, I think that makes sense because we are, we are made to be transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. But yeah, you you so your your brain is malleable and that and that's another amazing that's another amazing feature. But finally, I want to conclude on a little bit of a critical note and this goes along with what Nathan was saying earlier about the fact that you can't share this hallucination. And I want to just let's just state an oxymoron out loud. A private cosmic vision. Hmm. There's no such thing as a private cosmic vision. Now, you may have a feeling of cosmic oneness, but it's not true cosmic oneness, because I think, if I'm understanding you correctly, Nathan, I think you're right. This is a, this is a private vision, a private hallucination, a private either of one of sublimity or a nightmare. There is such a thing as a bad trip, of course. And I think also, by the way, what you were describing earlier about this, 
the structuring of the mind loosening up or going away. I think that also accounts for some of the folks who do this and experience it as a terrifying lack of control. Some people, you know, go with the flow. Other people find this to be an extremely ex- frightening experience. But if it's a if it's a private vision, then that feeling of communion is at least in part, maybe not completely, but is in part an illusion. I don't know, Nathan. Sort me out. Have I dug <laughs> yeah, us no, deeper? So I, yeah. So so the illusion. It, um, the illusion is real when you see that. There, what was the Willard quote you used a, a while ago about reality is what you bump into? How does that go? What's the, yeah, what's so the Willard reality quote about? Is, yeah, real, I, think, I think this is right. Reality is what you bump into when you get things wrong. Yeah, so lovingly holding the face of Osama bin Laden in certain situations is not the safest thing to do. Um, you know, we'll just leave it at that. So that you you can give yourself a perception of reality that is dangerous. That's for sure. Um, just, I want to read the conclusion to the book, Cameron, and then I'll get you uh, two thoughts and then get you to kind of wrap this up. But, and, and there's a lot of fun in here and you, you can be asking yourself the question, should I read this book? Uh, I don't know. It's a couple hundred pages of fascination. Um, I don't think you're missing too much in life if you don't, but and there's lots of fun, the whole stoned ape theory about how mammals consuming mushrooms spawned the consciousness that now exists in humanity. Paul Stamets hopped up on mushrooms in the top of a tree during a thunderstorm, getting cured of his stutter. Um, yeah, I mean, if you want to read them, that's interesting stories. They're all in there. Um, it is interesting to note and to point out, Cameron, that humans are the only animals that will do this to themselves twice. No other animals will take psilocybin intentionally a second time. Um, so I don't know what that means, but that's fascinating. Um, there's wait, that part wait, to it. What's psilocybin? So that's the, the active compound in the mushroom. That so that's a psychedelic element of the mushroom. So so if you why give a rat, ha- why would an- animals take this? An, okay, an animal won't do oh, it twice. I see in lab tests. Yeah. So say so say a rat ha- ate yep. this mushroom, it'll never do it again. Uh, <laughs> we're we're the Got only it. creatures that'd be like, hmm. Well, that was interesting. Let's do that again. Um, but so here's here's the conclusion to the book. So this is page 414. So after we've journeyed with Michael Pollan this far, he says this. I still tend to think that consciousness must be confined to the brains. But I'm less certain of this belief now than I was before I embarked on this journey. Maybe it too has slipped out from between the bars of that cage. Mysteries abide. But this I can say with certainty. The mind is vaster and the world ever so much more alive than I knew when I began. So I think just two, two directions of caution here for us as Christians. One is, um, there's, there's stuff there we can affirm. I think the world is far vaster and the mind far more amazing than we can comprehend. We want to affirm that. I would say you don't need a mushroom. I know that. Welcome to the club, Michael Pollan. Um, we've been here a long time. Do I need to go seek meaning and cosmic oneness through a chemical interaction in my brain? And as a Christian, I don't. So I think part of it is, is asking ourselves, why do we feel the need to pursue this? Why would we be interested in that? So there's one that is meaning, it, it masquerades as meaning seeking, but it's really meaning making. Because it is ultimately individual and isn't connected to reality or to other humans, which I think is a fundamental part of actual meaning in the world. 
And as a Christian, I continue to hold that out there as a possibility and invite people into that. The other side of that, where I think you can fall out of bed in the other direction, is to live your life as a Christian where you say, oh, those silly people, mushrooms and restructuring their brains. Um, you're being naive if you don't think you're doing that actively to yourself, not just through mushrooms, but through, as Cameron said, your patterns, your habits. Look up sometime the brain restructuring formation of a porn addiction mm. or which the other normal habits of ways in which we're actively cultivating the structures of our mind um, through our technological use. And this isn't like fear mongering. It's just saying mm. we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And that means we can be fearfully and wonderfully messed up when we don't use things for their intended purposes. And so that idea of purpose and of meaning puts the Christian on the peak of a mountain where we can look off in two directions and see excesses and abuses and walk a line that I think is healthy, restorative, and meaningful to people who are trying to make sense, not just of the world, but in this case, just make sense of their mind and their own life and the way in which they're embedded in it. So I think there's nothing to be scared of here. This isn't any fear mongering. Um, yes, there have always been people out there with crazy ideas, but let's be those people who can walk down the middle of this, be informed about what's happening, um, be open to the spiritual experiences that we should expect exist in a world created by a God, um, and, and live in that light. So, uh, yeah, these are the wonky things that I think if we're mature Christians, we can look at and analyze. Um, we don't pursue them with, uh, some sort of gross fascination, or run, flee from them in deep fear, but we see them actually as pointers to the complexity of the way that God made the world. And so that's the posture that I embark on some of these journeys of figuring out how other people are trying to make sense of life um, and hope this has been helpful in some way. Yeah, I think that's good. And it really is a fascinating topic. And part of the reason I'm grateful that this has been on your mind, Nathan, is I think, I don't think it's pure speculation to say that as a culture and as a nation, we're going to be talking about this a lot more probably in the oncoming years, just given the way this is trending. And yeah, as you as you said so well, Nathan, I think for me, the the overarching question as I as I was having this discussion is, does your is is it your mind or does your mind belong to God? And that may sound hopelessly kind of reductive. But I think it really has to do with, again, that question of purpose, which plays in here, in here, I think, so importantly. If, if your mind has a purpose, and if, it, if, it's, if it's imbued with an intrinsic purpose and meaning that you discover rather than make, then that really changes the way you approach really any mind-altering pursuit or endeavor. So I hope this has been helpful to you. And thanks so much for going on this journey with us. And thank you for listening to Thinking Out Loud, podcast where we think out loud, apparently about current events and magic mushrooms as well, and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book one of our speakers or make a donation visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com. And lastly, if you like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help.